Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Highway to Hoover the official podcast of SEC Extra over at D1Baseball.com. We are joined today, continuing our series of discussions with SEC baseball beat writers. We're joined today by Aria Gerson of the Tennessean. We're going to talk some Vanderbilt baseball. Plenty to talk about so far. They've played the toughest schedule of any SEC program so far, so obviously there's just a ton to, to chew on there. So we'll get into that in just a second, but first I have to let you know that Highway to Hoover is brought to you by Brock's Gap Brewing Company in Hoover, Alabama. If you're local to the Birmingham metro area, we suggest you get on out to Brock's Gap Brewing Company. Otherwise, we'll see you there at the SEC tournament. Thanks again to Brock's Gap Brewing Company for sponsoring Highway to Hoover all season. Uh, Aria, first off, thanks for joining us. I know it's a, a busy time of year to be a, a college beat writer. They call it crossover season, and it's it's quite hectic, so we really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Let's just start super broad. Um, what are kind of your big overarching thoughts that are rattling around after Vanderbilt's first eight games of the season? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to be too disappointed with the results of those games. They went two and one at the college baseball showdown tournament, and then they took the series from UCLA two to one, although they did lose a midweek to Central Arkansas, which wasn't great. But I came into the season thinking, you know, they have really eight marquee non-conference games, which included the first, both all the games, the first two weekends, plus uh, next week against Maryland, and then their midweek with Louisville, which is in May. And I was thinking that if they won four of those eight games, and then, you know, obviously around 16 to 17 SEC games, they'd be in pretty good shape for hosting. They already have won four of those games. So I think resume wise, that's pretty much uh, all you can ask for. I do think that, you know, the, the pitching looked really good uh, in particular against UCLA. Um, I think there was, there's a little hiccups in Arlington, but I think that some of it was just kind of, it was the first weekend. A lot of Vanderbilt's pitchers didn't pitch in the fall. So some of them are just ramping up now and, you know, kind of trying to figure out how to use all their pitchers, which I think is going to be I think the thing with this team is that like they're they're not one of those teams where they have one guy who is popping up on it. You know, every time he pitches, he's on somebody's draft uh, Twitter account or whatever. But I just think that it's a staff where there is not any bad pitchers. Like every pitcher on the staff is good and useful. The, you know, they come in mop up reliever and you're like, oh, well, he has good stuff, too. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to best use all of those pitchers. Um, the offense hasn't looked super amazing the first two weeks, but I think it's also, you know, worth considering the opponents that they were playing, especially UCLA. I think that was a series that everybody expected was going to be a lot of really low scoring and close games. And it was, and I think that at the very least, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a great offense, but I at least like that. I think the offense knows what it's trying to do. It kind of has an identity. It knows what it wants to be. And I do not think they had that last year. 
And so I think that that could potentially help in terms of them approaching every game, knowing what they want to be doing offensively. You mentioned at the top there, the midweek loss to central Arkansas and Vandy's fan base is because of the history is, is probably one of the more baseball knowledgeable sec fan bases, whereas others tend to be obviously very football centric or basketball centric. So maybe this wasn't as much of an issue, but how much did you have to explain on Twitter that Tuesday losses are not something you necessarily need to uh, worry to that those just happen in college baseball. It's always the first week of midweek games. I always find you have to do a lot of explaining about what's happening here. Yeah. I mean, I think that there was kind of, I, w- I was honestly expecting a worse reaction than I ended up getting. I think a lot of people were kind of just maybe took it more as a sign that they were worried about the team's offense, like they were preseason than anything else that I think that people recognize that given Vanderbilt's schedule that they are playing, that the RPI is going to be really high with that schedule pretty much regardless, as long as they don't you know finish under 500 or something. And so one midweek loss can be overcome, but it was definitely a change from last year when they won all but one of their midweeks and the one they lost was to Louisville and it was one to nothing um, when they had Devin Futrell pitching in them. So I I do think it's going to take some getting used to of not having him be dominating those anymore. But at the same time, you know, like I said, this was really smart scheduling by Vanderbilt to do it the way that they did. So they have a, a big margin for error when it comes to that. The UCLA series over the weekend, really, really well played. Um, that, that's kind of what struck me about it. And it was this deal where the teams traded shutouts the first two days, then obviously Vanderbilt, a really exciting two to one game to, to finish that series off. To what degree do you feel like that is a little bit of the blueprint? Maybe it's an extreme example, but to what degree do you feel like that's the blueprint for Vanderbilt this season to win series against good teams? Do you think maybe it had more to do with the opponent? UCLA kind of mirrored Vanderbilt in that they're trying to get it done on the mound. Offense is maybe a little still to come. Or do you think maybe the answer is somewhere in between there? Yeah, I think that this is the way that Vanderbilt probably wants to try to win series, ideally. Uh, Obviously, they played an opponent that was kind of a different version of themselves a little bit. And I think they need to show that they can beat some of those really high-powered offensive teams because those were teams that they did not beat last year by and large. But at the same time, the pitching was very good over the weekend and they showed, I think the depth really shined. It's like I said, you know, I think there's, there's bigger names at other schools in the SEC, but what Vanderbilt has, it's honestly kind of the opposite of some of those. Like you think of Tennessee and you think of, oh, well, they have their three guys in their rotation that could be Friday starters at the other school. Well, Vanderbilt kind of flips that because what they have is a really excellent bullpen. So they can shorten the games. You know, you think about like, well, if they try to make themselves play nine inning games while their opponent is basically playing like seven inning games because of their shutdown bullpen. But then the first seven innings, you know, you're, you're facing Carter Holton or Hunter Owen or somebody like that. So it's not like their rotation is anything to sneeze about either. So I think that that is kind of the blueprint is like get an early lead of any number of runs. Uh, the rotation pitches well all three days and then shut it down with Nick Maldonado, Thomas Schultz, Bryce Cunningham, whoever they're using as you know, high leverage roles, which might change throughout the season. But Nick Maldonado and Bryce Cunningham especially were very good against UCLA. 
And, you know, when Maldonado came in, uh, it was, it was the seventh inning of a two to one game. Uh, and he tried to get a, basically a three inning save. And there was really never any point that that was in doubt once he came in and having that, I think is going to be really valuable for Vanderbilt because if they can get a lead in these games, they know that they have some people who can come and shut that down. Yeah, it's such an interesting, you alluded to it at the top that they just have a lot of really good options and no one that feels like, for lack of a better way of putting it, they have to be in this role or they have to be in that role. So in light of that, because I know I was playing this game in the preseason when I was looking at what Vanderbilt had to come back and was trying to project where the pieces fit, based on what you thought it would look like coming into the season and what it's actually looked like, understanding, of course, it's, it's just two weekends. Has anything surprised you about the pitcher usage in terms of who's been in what roles and and how is how has that been different than maybe what you expected? Yeah, I'm honestly not too surprised about who ended up being in the rotation. I think a lot of people were, but they started out uh, right now, Carter Holton on Fridays, Hunter Owen on Saturdays, and Devin Petrell on Sundays, which is mostly more surprising because they actually decided to do three lefties in the weekend rotation, which I didn't necessarily think that they would do, but I did actually come in thinking based on what I had seen in scrimmages in the fall and all of that, that those would end up being their three best starters. And so I wasn't surprised that those did end up being their three best starters. I was a little more surprised with using Patrick Riley and Grayson Carter to start midweeks. I thought Bryce Cunningham or Andrew Dukanich should probably be in those roles, but they end up using them in the bullpen and said, now Bryce Cunningham it's less less about his role for me and more about how he looks because he looks way better than last year, way improved, stuff looks better, command looks better. Like if he keeps pitching like he did the first two weeks, whatever role he ends up being in, like he's going to be really good. And they already have a bunch of other really good sophomore pitchers on that team uh, who are not draft eligible until 2024. So that is kind of another weapon that that has emerged that I guess that surprised me just how much better he looked from, from last year. But outside of that, I think that I'm not too surprised about the roles that they started people in. I felt like it was, you know, based on what I had seen, I kind of had an idea of who they were thinking of using as starters and relievers, but just more, I guess I wasn't necessarily expecting how good they all looked from the first weekend. You mentioned the lineup, and that's certainly more of where there there are questions, myself included. I'll throw myself in that bucket. I, you know, I'm kind of wondering what this lineup will ultimately be. I'll give you my read on it, and you tell me if if you think this is this is right on, or if if, if maybe I'm off base a little bit, and kind of give your thoughts on it. It feels like this is a lineup outside of Bradfield. Let's set him aside um, because we know. I mean, he's electric. We know what he is. You know, all that. And no notes for Enrique Bradfield Jr. Um, Outside of that, though, you look at the lineup and there's there's not a lot that like is going to make people jump out of their seat. Right. Um, you mentioned there's not a big time prospect in this lineup necessarily that, that you know, is, is jumps out and is going to appear on any sort of there's not an Austin Martin, for example, top this lineup. But it feels like you mentioned kind of knowing what they're trying to do. I also think it feels more like a I hate this term, but I don't know how to get around it. Like it feels very blue collar, gritty like they they compete, like it feels a little more of like a classically Vanderbilt lineup when you go back maybe seven, eight years, that kind of lineup where it's very pitching centric and the lineup is just doing enough. 
Um, how much of that does that jive with kind of the read you have on this position player group? Yeah. So I think that the, the best way I know how to explain it, I think is just that they decided to build their team identity around speed. And obviously that makes sense given Enrique Bradfield jr. But they have a lot of other really good base runners on this team. That includes Calvin Hewitt, who's currently leading the team in stolen bases, RJ Austin, you know, Matthew Polk, Jonathan Bassine, uh, all of those players, you know, they can steal bases, they can take the extra base, they can advance on flyouts. They're going to be really aggressive on the bases and try to put pressure on defenses. And even on the pitching side, a lot of Vanderbilt's pitchers work really fast. They try to speed up the hitters. They just try to speed, just as a team, they try to speed up opponents. I think that's kind of their central identity and it's not what other sec teams are doing at all uh so i think that's the question is corda like how much will that work when you're facing you know teams that have all these big boppers in the lineup and you know a lot more power especially when weather gets warmer because vanderbilt you know it's kind of cold early in the season at vanderbilt it's it's you know often in the 50s until about april and the ball just doesn't carry it all there and so they can use that to their advantage to an extent, but when it gets to be 90 degrees and balls are flying out everywhere, can they keep up? That's still the question that I have, but I do at least like what they're trying to do with the speed thing. Uh, and I do think it, it has worked. I mean, in Arlington, they were forcing so many errors. They're getting hit by a ton of pitches. There was really good base running. They were stealing a ton of bases. UCLA slowed that down a little bit. Still, I, I do think that it works. I think I like that they know what they're doing with it. And I do think that they could do some, I think it's a little, maybe a little bit more balanced, a little bit more consistent and that they're getting a little more production from the bottom of the order than they were last year. So I think it's one of those things where it's like, it's not going to be like, oh, well, if Spencer Jones isn't coming up and we're down, you know, we're screwed. At the same time, you know, I, I do still think that there's a little bit of a, like you said, kind of a, they might have to win some games two to nothing or three to nothing or whatever have you. Is the most shocking statistic on this team so far that uh, Bradfield Jr. has been caught stealing three times? Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think UCLA, um, they kept using pitch outs to try to stop Bradfield, which uh, I'm not sure that other teams will do that because you really have to be confident in your pitcher's ability to throw strikes to do that because you're giving the hitters a free ball. But they did catch him multiple times by doing that. And they were they were pretty good at, at controlling him, which as no other team has really been able to do throughout the past two years. So it'll be interesting to see if anybody else tries that. But I also think he was gunning for the program record, which he just broke on Sunday for career stolen bases. He might also be gunning for the single season stolen base record, which he would need 52 steals mm -hmm. to get to that and has almost gotten there, but not quite in previous seasons. Yeah. On the doorstep both years, right? I mean, it's yeah. high forties. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting that he's so close. Um, Let's look ahead a little bit. Uh, this weekend, Vanderbilt playing in the tournament at Minneapolis, the, the tournament that used to be called exquisitely the Dairy Queen Classic. Uh, <laughs> it is no longer called that. It has got a much more boring name, in, in, at least in Joe's opinion. Um, 
but good competition there um, that they're, that they're going to see against the, the, it's a pretty good group of big 10 teams, uh, no disrespect to Minnesota, but at least with Nebraska and Maryland, you, you know, you're going to get some quality opposition there. What are your just general expectations for, for that tournament and in a unique setting? I, I covered that tournament a few years ago and there was not shockingly for Minnesota in early March, there was snow all over the ground and it was kind of a pain. So it's just even beyond the on-field competition, it's just, playing in a weird setting. It's a weird, it's a different climate. It's, it's all of those things. Uh, just generally, what are you kind of looking forward to this weekend? Yeah, I think it's an interesting tournament for them to be in for sure. And I'm pretty familiar with big 10 baseball and I feel like it always has an air of chaos to it, especially at the beginning of the season, just because, you know, all these teams are always going on the road. You never know, like some teams will have like one good pitcher or two good pitchers but I think that it'll be interesting, especially the game against Maryland. I think Vanderbilt was lucky to get them on Saturday and not Friday. They avoid Jason Savakul by doing that. But, you know, it's not like they're, you know, it's not like Nick Dean is bad either. So it's still going to be a challenge against a team that did host a regional last year. And like I kind of mentioned, I want to see if Vanderbilt can beat teams that like to score a lot of runs. And that is certainly Maryland. I certainly think that that will be a test of, okay, they could beat a team that has a similar profile to them. Can they beat teams that might have a similar, more similar profile to like an Ole Miss or a Texas A&M or some of those SEC teams that have tons of hitting, maybe questionable pitching. So um, I'm interested to see that. I think Nebraska, Nebraska is kind of fun because you have the kind of, Team USA matchup, Carter Holton was on Team USA, so was Emmett Olsen. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of fun. I'm one thing that, you know, seeing the dimensions of the ballpark uh that's 300 feet out to right field. And it makes me wonder, you know, Vanderbilt, they've been using the all left-handed rotation. And I wonder if that's gonna be an advantage for them because teams might put fewer left-handed hitters in the lineup and those are the ones who would have the easiest time hitting balls out there. So I'm curious to see that too, but I certainly think there's going to be no shortage of good players in this tournament and there will be some really fun matchups, especially, you know, I think, like I said, a lot of Vanderbilt's pitchers did not pitch in the fall. A lot of their best pitchers, they've been on pitch counts the first couple of weeks, the first week, nobody went past 80 uh, last week, I think a few people went to 90, but they weren't being they weren't able to go past that. So I'm not sure if they're still on pitch counts, but I think as they gradually ramp up, they might be able to go a little bit deeper into games, which will only help Vanderbilt as well. But it's another good test for them. And I think like a, one thing I really like about their schedule is that every weekend that's on there, they're going to learn something about themselves and they certainly will with this tournament. Yeah, no doubt about that. A couple, couple things there. One is I was in Oxford last weekend and saw Savakul against Ole Miss and that guy knows what he's doing. Um, it was, it was pretty, pretty impressive stuff against, like you mentioned, a, a good offense, uh, you know, drizzly rainy conditions, but, but still he was, he was quite good. And you mentioned the dimensions of that ballpark. And I don't know if it's the perspective because right field is so short and also looks short because there's a high wall up in right field. So it almost makes it feel more claustrophobic. So maybe that's what's causing it, but the left field dimensions aren't on paper too crazy. It's like 325 and 375 to the gap, but just looking at it, it looks like that's at least a hundred feet short of how far it is to left field. 
Like it looks like it should be 420 and 475 just because again, I don't know if that's the perspective or what it is, but it's a wonky, you know, when I, when I covered that a few years ago, I don't, I mean, the outfielders were playing at about half depth in left field. And, you know, there weren't a lot of challenges to get balls over their heads in, in left field. Cause it, 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 it feels like it plays pretty big. I don't know if that's true or not. I obviously don't have data to back that up, but it, it, it felt like it, it played, played bigger than that, but it, but it's, I mean, you're right. It's a fun tournament. It's, I, I like that it's an SEC big 10 format. I know they've been trying to do that. The Minnesota who puts it together has been trying to do that. And the pandemic got in the way and everything got, askew there but it, they should learn um Vanderbilt and the other SEC teams there should should learn quite a bit um one more thing for you and I, I didn't prep you on this but I, I had I, I have to ask in your in your Twitter bio you mentioned one of your previous stops was the Cape Cod Times yes um what kind of ecosystem was that to report and write in and, and what kind of stories were you were you doing for the Cape Cod Times I, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of being a journalist on on the Cape yeah, so I was there specifically covering the Cape Cod Baseball League. Okay. And that was okay. probably my that was my first real job that I was actually covering college baseball. So I covered the whole league, which is unlike most people who work on the Cape who work with a specific team. So I kind of went around to a lot of different games, but there was a handful of teams that I covered more closely, both because they were good, they had the best players, and in some cases because their games started early enough to hit our print deadline. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, so one of the teams that I covered a lot when I worked there was uh, Kotuit, which that summer they had Nick Gonzalez, Matt Mervis, uh, Casey mm. Schmidt, and several other people who um, are, you know, good prospects now. And it was actually kind of funny because when I started covering Vanderbilt, some of the players that I covered – ended up, uh, you know, transferring into the SEC, which included people like Jacob Polish, who went to Texas A&M, oh, yeah. Troy Conch yeah. also went to Texas A&M, um, Chris Lanzilli, who was at Arkansas last year, he was another one from that summer. So I did write a lot of features as well. I would kind of just find players that had interesting stories or that were doing really well. It was a lot of times like players who we're doing really well on the Cape who didn't necessarily do as well in their college seasons or who I'd never mm -hmm. heard of, or who were from smaller schools that I would target to write about. And so that was pretty interesting, especially, like I said, getting to follow them later and being like, okay, here's where they're all going in their careers and feeling like I kind of saw them in the early stages of that. Uh, Judd Fabian was another person that I profiled and then ended up, mm -hmm. you know, seeing him later in the SEC yeah. as well. So that was definitely, it was definitely a fun job. It was definitely challenging because of how many teams and players I was having to keep track of. You know, there's not one like, can't just go on the website. All right, here's the roster. The rosters are always changing. <laughs> I'd always show up at a game. Wait, where's this player? Oh, he left. Okay. <laughs> and then, um, but it, it was definitely a lot of fun and it definitely, I think, helped me to get a start in the college baseball world. Yeah. I, the other low key thing about the Cape, and actually this summer will be the first time I'm, I'm actually going to the Cape this summer will be my first time. I'm super excited about it. But the other low key thing that I contended with just when I was trying to figure out where I'm going to stay is that it's not like it's not like spring training in Arizona where all of the teams are within like 10 minutes of each other. I mean, it's pretty spread out. Like the Cape means a lot of things. <laughs> and so I imagine for you, just kind of 
having to drive around only to find out that the player you're looking for is no longer on the team had to be a particularly maddening experience. Yeah, I would just, I would usually reach out to the coach first. I'd be like, all right, can I go talk to this player today? And then I'd come before the game and would would pull them aside usually uh, during their pregames. But um, yeah, it was sort of like I would I would have to pick games every week to go to. And I'd be like, all right, well, who are the best matchups this week? Who? And then, you know, sometimes I go to the matchups and I'd be like, OK, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> but, you know, I saw some cool stuff uh, polished through a no hitter in one of the games that I watched. Uh, so that was uh, Nick Gonzalez almost hit for the cycle. He tried to get a cycle, but he got thrown out, I think, trying for a triple. <laughs> <laughs> he knew he was close to hitting for the cycle so it's just fun stuff like that because it doesn't I mean it matters but it doesn't matter that much like the individual stats don't really matter that much so I think people were having a little more fun with it and people were just kind of you know it was it was more low-key I think than than more like hardcore college environment or pro environment yeah, I mean, Nick Gonzalez uh, getting thrown out by a mile trying to go for a triple is not going to land him really in hot water with anyone. It's just, right. you know, yeah, <laughs> we understand. Like, yeah, go for it, man. It's summer ball. Let's get you that cycle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, well, Ari, I appreciate you joining me today. Vanderbilt off, I mean, one of the more interesting teams to follow, I think, because there's a little bit of an air of mystery almost about this team. Uh, for the first time in a while, it feels like I'm I'm having to wrap my hands around this team a little more than than um that I have in years past. So I appreciate you giving a little insight there and joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Highway to Hoover presented by Brock's Gap Brewing Company. Follow Aria on Twitter at Aria underscore Gerson. Follow me on Twitter at Joe Healy B1. Subscribe to the Tennessean. Support Aria's work. I know the local beat in the SEC is invaluable to my job. There's a lot of information that is hard for me to ferret out as someone who works for a national uh, national company. So, you know, for you as a fan, if you're listening to this, obviously the, the work of Aria and others out in through the SEC will make you a more informed fan. So subscribe to tennis, the Tennessee and support local beat writers, do all that stuff while you're at it. Sub subscribe to SEC Extra over at d1baseball.com. And if you've not already done so, subscribe to Highway to Hoover on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to y'all soon. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious.